Well, let's open our Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 10. The Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 10. Let me pray for us this morning. Gracious Lord, will you rain down upon us your spirit today. Open our eyes to your word. Set aside all of those stresses and pressures of the week. All of those things that distract us. That our hearts and our minds might be silent before you. Listening for you. Listening for your direction and your insight that we may walk in the holiness and wisdom of you. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. All right, I want you to just keep your Bible open to John chapter 10. I'll explain in just a moment. Now, there's a small plaque in the workroom at the office that says, When I count my blessings, I count chocolate twice. How appropriate. Okay. <laughs> now, you all know I have a proclivity towards chocolate. Uh, my cholesterol doctor would rather I have a proclivity toward broccoli. Okay. Um, uh, but, but I'm working on that. Now, the question for us today is, do we count our blessings? And if we do, then what do we do? After we've counted them, what do we do? Now, if you looked in your worship folder this morning, you uh, saw that we were supposed to go to Joshua chapter 10 and and uh, look more about how God deals with the stupid, um, which I gladly admit to being stupid. Uh, now, a few weeks ago, we saw, if you recall, that uh, Joshua and the Israelites made a rather rash treaty with the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites uh, deceived them with sandals that were worn out and clothes that were worn out and moldy bread as if they'd come from really far away. And they showed up and said, we want to make a treaty with you. And Joshua, looking at their moldy bread, looking at their tattered clothes and worn-out sandals, said, well, it must be true that they've come from a far way, so sure, let's have a treaty. Well, then they find out that the Gibeonites were only 30 miles away, that they had deceived them, but Joshua had given his word and made a covenant with them before the Lord. So they were obligated to do that. Now, in chapter 10... What happens is that some guys get together, some kings, and they attack the Gibeonites, and the Israelites are obligated to defend them. And so God provides for them. He, in fact, intervenes in the length of the day, and the Israelites are great victors. So uh, there's that sermon for you. Uh, and, and that God provides for the stupid. Joshua and the Israelites were stupid, but God provided for them. Now, I, we really don't need to go there any further because we all have been stupid and we have all walk, watched the Lord work in our lives, protecting us, guiding us, making something great out of our mistakes. So it's time to move in a new direction. Okay? And I don't mean just for a week and I don't mean just for a month or for the rest of the year. I believe that it is time that we as the believers gathered in this place for God's purposes 
are ready to reorient our lives towards an obedience which we have previously talked about and previously touched on, but I do not believe we have committed ourselves fully and completely to that obedience. We see in the past, past years, past generations, let's say it was enough for the church to be located in the community, just in the community, because society was oriented toward that way of thinking. When an American community thought about faith, it thought about the Christian faith. Okay? When the American community thought about the Christian faith, it thought about Presbyterianism and Methodist and Baptist and Brethren, Episcopalians and, and uh, Roman Catholicism. That, that's what they, they thought about. People would arrive in the community and they would look for a new church home in the same way, way that they would look for a new dentist or a new doctor or a new car mechanic. Once they found one close to their home, then they would commit themselves to it. They would go to the church dinners. They would attend worship, become members, have their children baptized, grow up in it, have their own pew. Yeah, I know. <laughs> their own pew. And they make it part of their lives. It's just the way that they would do. Or pews for some families. Okay, That they make it part of their lives. And then, for a variety of reasons, which, which really are beyond our scope today, and, and we'll look at a little bit in the future, but the the reasons are far beyond what we have time for today. The church began to have less of an influence in people's lives. Now, if, if you, you think, now we understand, we're in the South, this is the Bible Belt, everybody you know uh, belongs to a church or goes to a church. Well, not so much today anymore. You know, the church spends more money now per capita and adjusted for uh, inflation and everything else than it has ever spent in the past. And you know what happens when people fill out applications and surveys and it comes to religion? More and more people mark the unaffiliated box. More people than ever before mark the unaffiliated box. And we're spending more money than ever before. There's something incongruous incongruous there. They don't match how it is that our dollars are not returning a return on our investment. Not that you could reduce God's work to how many dollars we spend in ministry. Now, the people still look for doctors. They still look for dentists. But their search for a church home is on the back burner. And when they are ready to search for a, a search home, they've done a lot of stuff on, on the Internet and, and searching that way. But they're much more willing to drive a long distance. They're much more willing to go around what they see right in front of them to a place that does what? Fits their needs. Fits their needs. Is it the worship type of worship that I like, type of music I like? Do my kids fit in? Do they have a ministry for every age group of, of my children? Uh, are the messages light? Are they applicable? Um, you know, do I walk out feeling really jazzed and good? I mean, these are the things that go on in, in people's minds. And maybe you know some people who have sought out a church that is in that category. I have friends that, that I know to, still to this day who are involved in three or four different churches and not calling any one of them home. They like the worship over here because of the music. And then uh, Wednesday night they go over here to uh, Bible study. Then their kids go to this church over here. And then they're involved in a small group in this church. And they have four different churches that they are tied to. Because they have these needs that they think only those churches can meet. Well, something happened to the church over the last, let's say, 15 years, okay? A new understanding of what we should be, when in reality it's the old understanding of what the church is to be. 
Back in Wilmington, North Carolina, um, I was, we had a special speaker come in to kind of uh, uh, deal with small churches that wanted to uh, get, get, get themselves going again. And I think uh, this was probably the best individual in, in the denomination at that time to do this. And he was a professor. And uh, as I drove him around to these speaking engagements, these, these uh, little sessions and workshops that we had set up, we would sit in the car and talk. And he told me about a book that he had just written, and it was called The Missional Church. The Missional Church. And as he began to talk about it, you know, it, it just went over my head because he was an academic and it was a conceptual thing and it was one of those Ivy Tower uh, type of, of books that is meant to stir the pot. And I had not read the book, so uh, my pot was not ready to be stirred very much on that topic. But when he left town, I went out and bought the book. And so did a million other pastors, church leaders, elders. And it began to work its way into the vernacular of our professional vocabulary, this term missional, missional, which I've mentioned before and I'm going to mention more again. While all this was happening, academically, there was also something going on within the churches across society, across America. People were beginning to feel a... uh, a struggle with an understanding of what the church was over against what the church really could be or really should be. No longer were good the good churches just talking about having a strong focus on missions, writing checks to those who were called uh, to go out into the far lands, hearing reports of the mighty works that the Lord was doing in the, in the church in, in different parts of the world in its infancy, uh, or uh, supporting a work that was in part of the city, uh, maybe on the other side of the tracks, that really needed some work. Okay? I mean, that's, that's good stuff, but that's an understanding of missions. The concept that we should be about as a church is changing from a concept of missions to a, an understanding that's called missional, missional, which is very different. Now, I want you to understand that over the course of the next few months, I'm going to use that word quite a bit. So you'll need to get a good understanding of it. In fact, I'm going to print the definition out in the worship folder for weeks on end until it is so ingrained in us that it becomes a part of our lives. Now, a missional church is a verb church. It is a verb-driven church. A missions church is an adjective church, I think. I think that's a part of the language I want to use. You can describe a church as being focused on missions, but it is a congregational that lives out their faith in a missional fashion. It means members that are pursuing the kingdom, members that are pursuing the mighty works of the Lord and doing them as he calls us to do. Now, let me give you a definition that you'll read in the folder in the coming weeks. Missional. The people of God partnering with him in his redemptive mission in the world. The people of God partnering with him in his redemptive mission in the world. And I know some of you are thinking, well, Rand, how's that different from what we're doing? How's that different? Okay. Well, it would be great if it was not different, but I think it is different. Now, in case you had any doubts about this church, this is a very, very good church. In fact, in my history in Presbyterianism, this is a great church. And I've said this on many times. If I was not the pastor here and I lived in Huntsville, I would come to this church. Okay? Um, we worship faithfully. 
We study the word of God because it is the truth of God. It is the power of God unto salvation. We fill our minds and our hearts with this. Okay? But we've got to put it to use. We've got to now apply it in ministry in a missional fashion in this community. We are working at taking better care of one, of the needs within this church, of encouraging one another, of, uh, you know, of doing what we're supposed to within this community. We've got a missions budget that consumes a very large percentage of our general budget. But I want you to ask yourself this question, because this is a question that I ask myself. And I didn't like the answer that I came up with. If, it's a beautiful blue sky day out there, isn't it? If in the next 10 minutes the sky darkened and a tornado came and rested right here on this corner of this block and destroyed this building and destroyed all of us, would we leave a hole in Huntsville? If we were suddenly gone, what would be missing from Huntsville? Now, I know my dog and my mother would miss me terribly, okay? So that's not what I'm talking about. How is it that we impact the community that if the tornado came and we were gone, they would go, man, I wish those central people were back here. Because look what they were doing. Now, there are a couple places that were doing good work that the community would miss, that the people would miss. But, you know, I've been here for nine years, and so this, it all goes here, you know, as the starting place. I do not believe that we make a big enough impact on this town that people would miss us. Now, now I'm not talking about where we serve in the community, uh, are you on boards and things like that. I'm saying, do we apply the gospel of Jesus Christ in Huntsville in a fashion that we partner with God in his missional work, in his redemptive work in this community? Whose lives are being changed because of our application of the gospel in Huntsville? I didn't like the answer when I asked myself that question. I knew it was trouble. Because I like my world, okay? Uh, We all like our world. We're growing spiritually. It's good. We're feeding. We're caring for one another. But when the tornado comes, is anybody going to miss us? Is anybody going to miss us? Is anybody going to miss the work we do for Christ in Huntsville? Now, let's take a moment and try to define what I mean when I say his redemptive mission. Let's look at John chapter 10, verse 10. See, we went from all of Joshua chapter 10 down to half a verse. Okay? John chapter 10, verse 10, the second half of that verse. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly and might have it abundantly. Now, we understand that the life Jesus gives is no normal life. He did not come along here just so we could be happy, just so we could be, you know, feel good about ourselves. The life that he gives is no normal life. When he goes to the well at noon and he meets a woman who is there with her water pot, to gather water at noon in the Middle East. Nobody goes to to get water at noon in the Middle East because it's so hot. Well, she is there because she's an outcast. And she shows up with her water pot to get water, and they have this conversation. And she is looking for water, and Jesus says, I'm going to give you the living water, and you will never thirst again. 
And, and, you know, I'm paraphrasing. She goes, what kind of well does that come from? Okay, it comes from the well of our Heavenly Father. It comes from a well that loves us so much that he would send his son to this world to die for us and to rise again, and you will never thirst again. That is the type of water he gives us. That's the type of life that he calls us to. No ordinary water, no ordinary life. He gives us eternal life, which is guaranteed because of his life and his death and his resurrection. But that life is given to the redeemed in this world, and it is given to us in an ever-growing abundance. An ever-growing abundance. That means that, that does not mean that this is, we're going to have a long life, necessarily. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have an easy life, life free from sorrow, free from sickness. It does not mean that we are to be so meek that we are the doormat for the world. It is none of that. It is a contented life, and it is a blessed life. We find this type of blessing and contentment in the things that the world does not understand. The world doesn't understand how you can be contented, how you can receive and think you are blessed, even though the world around you says, no, to be blessed, you've got to demonstrate it in these ways. You've got to have more stuff. You've got to have more power and more authority. And we're saying, no, we're blessed because we've got Christ. And we're walking in obedience and we're doing those things and we're giving ourselves away on a regular basis to the point that when the tornado comes, the community goes, Where are they? What happened to them? Let's look at contentment for a second. I'm contented because I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied because there is abundance in my life. The Greek word for abundance is a mathematical term meaning a surplus. I live in abundance. I live in a surplus. A surplus of what? Because I've been made alive in Christ... He has come, remember, he has come that I may have life and have it what? Abundantly. Abundantly. So that my cup overflows. Now, that's an image we all know from Psalm 23. And as a believer, what does my cup overflow with? As one who has been called by Jesus Christ, who has received him as my Lord and Savior, what is now in my cup and what's it overflow with? Originally, my cup was full of the things of sin. And then Christ calls me by name and he changes my life and he begins to pour into my cup those things from his cup. What's in his cup? Joy and peace and patience, and love, and grace, and justice, and righteousness, and all those things, to the point that what happens? It overflows. Are we overflowing? Have we, have we so understood what is being poured into us as believers, as those whose lives have been changed by Christ, that we are overflowing? Is it oozing out of our pores, these blessings? So that the community walks by and it rubs off on them. So that those who are hurting are being rubbed off on and cared for. You know, when Jesus fed the 5,000, he started with some loaves and some fishes. And there were 5,000 in the hillside. That's just the men. And you add on the women and the children. So we're talking about many thousands. And when he was done with that, what was left over? Twelve baskets full. There were some crumbs left on the yard, you know, for the birds to come. Twelve baskets full. Jesus did not create just enough. He created an abundance. An abundance so that it was overflowing. There was more than enough for everybody to feast on. He does not 
grant his grace with an eyedropper. He does not bestow his grace on his children in a miserly fashion. Now, for those of you who are shower people, okay, I like showers over baths. When I take a shower, I look at that shower head, and what comes out of it? It's water comes out, okay? Lots of water. Now, when I'm done with a shower, how much of that water has stayed on me? Well, you know, if I, if I learn from my dog and I go like this, then most of it's gone. Where is it gone? Down the drain. That's excess. That's abundance. If we were in drought conditions, you might put the plug in the tub and bless your houseplants with that excess. You might bless your flower bed with the overabundance of water from your shower that has come upon you and, and, and flowed off. That's the same type of thing with the Lord. He comes and he blesses us in abundance. What do we do with it? Do we bless anybody else with it? We count our blessings. We count chocolate twice. What do we do after we've counted them? Oh, let me let me get my. I didn't bring my phone. I say I, I keep a catalog. Okay, I got all my blessings, and I got them all listed here, and they're all mine. I, I've got this wonderful life, this wonderful family, this great job, and, and the Lord has blessed me, and I'm growing, and I'm in these three studies, and I've got it all here with me. God says abundance is meant to be given away. You've got to take that and you've got to apply it in what we call the missional fashion. You have to live it out. Live it out. Now, how does this deal with partnering with his redemptive mission? What father gives his son a snake when he asks for a fish? What father gives a son a stone when he asks for bread? Has God given us snakes? Has he given us stones? Or has he given us fish and bread? Now look at our lives. We get a lot of fish and bread. None of our lives are perfect. None of our lives are without hardship or struggle. But we got a lot of fish and bread. The Lord has blessed us in a fabulous way. In a fabulous way. What are we to do with those blessings? What are we called to do? How are we called to live out the things of Christ in this community so that when the tornado comes, there is a giant hole in Huntsville? Because we're gone. Because we're gone. Over the next, I don't know how many weeks. It's one of those things. I usually am pretty good. I plan out stuff. Ask Donald. I usually give him sermons and scripture, you know, three or four months ahead. I don't. I didn't give him anything. He's going to walk by faith for the next months, okay, (laughs) and what the music should be. Odds are it'll fit what it is that we're doing because that's the way that the Lord works continually. But I don't know how many weeks, probably until we are sick of it, I'm going to look and we are going to look at God's blessings, how he blesses us and how he calls us to live because of that. You know, when God called Abraham, now you all know Abraham, He was this guy living in Ur and no real attentiveness to the Lord. The Lord calls him and he says, I'm going to send you to a country that you do not know. I'm going to make you a great people and I will bless you so you can do what? Be a blessing. Jesus Christ has called us by name. He has called us out of the darkness of sin, out of the chains of sin that bound us. And, and, and kept us prisoner, and he has set us free, and he says, I've called you to a new world, a new life, to do what? 
to be the blessing. So that we might demonstrate the things of Christ. So that we might proclaim the gospel. So that we might live it out. So that we might participate with God in his redemptive mission right here in Huntsville. Okay, what's that mean? I I don't have any closure for you today. Okay, I can't tie it up nice and neat. It's going to be messy for a while. But we're going to look at God's blessing and then what that blessing causes us to do here. So that when the tornado comes, they go, man, I wish these people from Central were still here. Because they were doing things for the Lord and the Lord was working in their lives in such a fabulous way. I don't know what it will be. I don't know what the Lord is going to call us to do. We know we've got some mission going on across, across the street that's going to be impacting the community. But what about us? What about when we walk out of here? In the next months, we are going to examine that and see what the Lord calls us to do so that we are no longer simply a church that has been blessed and is doing a a fine ministry. We're going to be a church that's doing things that we haven't even thought about so that God might be glorified, so that we care for those in the community, the least of these the widows and orphans, all of those who need to hear the gospel, we will live it out, we will proclaim it in word and in deed. And we will impact Huntsville for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just don't know where you're going to call us now. But in our hearts, we know that we've been blessed. For those of us who are believers, our lives have changed. And we know in the deep recesses of our hearts and minds that it's not enough to live complacently, knowing that you've done a great work in us. That's great. It's a fact. There it is. That's not enough for us. Heavenly Father, we would ask today, that you would create in us hearts that are so geared towards living out this change, living out what it is that you call us to, living out and impacting those around us, that we would never simply walk by someone in a conversation, that we would listen, that we would seek to care for them, that we would now look with new eyes in our community and say, where is it that we can partner with you in your redemptive mission here in Huntsville? Show us these things, Lord. Make us aware of these things. Inflame our hearts with a desire to serve and to care and to present the gospel. With these hands, use them, Lord. With these feet, send us. With this mouth, proclaim the gospel. Use us as your instruments. So that we might not be shy. We might not ever compromise on the things of gospel, of the gospel, that but might we be bold. For you have blessed us. It's time that those things, that abundance, be demonstrated. And Lord, you can do things that we cannot even dream or imagine of. Lord, we're ready to see that. We're ready to be those instruments of the things that we can't even dream or imagine of. We're ready to partner, Lord. Come, 
Strengthen us, we pray. Make our hearts aflame for the things of Christ. That we would never be shy. That we would never hold back. In our love, in our compassion, in the joy, in the peace, all of these things that you have given us, might we be demonstrators of them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to the table not.